Hey everyone, welcome to the Musea podcast. My name is Michael Howard. I'm the founder and CEO of Musea, and this is episode 81. If you are listening to this and you're a professional photographer or artist and you need true archival quality printing, then we would love to work with you at Musea. We print on the best papers in the world with archival pigment inks. We offer fine art printing, archival matting services, museum quality framing, handmade fine art albums, and canvas. Uh, you can order directly through us at musealab.com, or you can use us for auto-fulfillment through PickTime or Instaproofs. For this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Brooke Schultz. She's a family photographer, educator, mentor, and podcast host. She is starting a new project called Heartful Magazine, which is a magazine featuring inspiring work from family photographers all across the world. You can learn more about Heartful Magazine on Instagram at Heartful Magazine. Make sure to check the show notes for links to all the amazing things Brooke is doing. She's doing a lot and she has a lot of amazing resources for photographers that will help you break through your creative barriers. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. Tell your friends about the Musea podcast, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brooke Schultz. I'm Brooke Schultz, and I am a family photographer, educator, and just all around obsessed with creativity person. I'm currently writing a musical about motherhood and family life and just have a podcast of my own. So kind of just my whole shtick on life is just living it creatively and in as many mediums as possible. Okay, so let's get a little bit of like a career background on you. Um I guess maybe if it started with the camera or if you need to go farther back to any sort of other creative pursuits early on, but just a little couple, two or three minute synopsis. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started into photography when I was 17. A family friend heard me saying that I wished I could color for a living. And this was before like the fancy adult coloring books. And so she was like, hey, I need somebody to edit my photos. I'm a photographer. And so she taught me how to edit, taught me Photoshop way back in the day, started taking me on shoots. And then fast forward to me in college, I'm studying music, but I have this passion for photography as well. And my coworker is getting married and she's like, I just want to have the cheapest wedding possible. And I'm showing her all these amazing photographers that I think she should hire for her wedding. She's like, how about you just do it? I'm like, okay, what should I charge for this? <laughs> 75 bucks. That's what I landed on. <laughs> 75 bucks. So I shoot her wedding with just the Nikon D70. Like there's no zeros after that. D70 is what I shoot her wedding with. Pop-up flash, everything. And I mean, I did not do my editing self justice. I gave her the images half edited. I just like stopped halfway through the reception. I was like, yeah, we're done with these. So um, that was my that was my first wedding. And then I became a wedding photographer after that. Finished up my degree in music education. Uh, had four children and have built my business simultaneously with my family as well. And then transitioned to family photography and uh, doing retreats and education for other photographers as well. And, um, you know, all these other creative pursuits that I'm mentioning just kind of peppered in there as I as I feel like it. So it's it's the best. I love being a creative entrepreneur. It's so much fun. That's awesome. When uh, when did you transition from weddings to family photography? This was 2015 and I had two kids at that point. And um, I still loved wedding photography and just loved family photography more, loved the hours more um, and felt that that was when I started to really get the sense of how much family photography meant to me as a mother, to me as a client, because I had some experiences with photographers photographing me and my family, and I cherished those images daily. I felt like they were the signs from my future self, that they were my connection point to the person I wanted to be, to the woman, the wife, the mother I wanted to be. And so I started to feel how much this work actually meant. So of course, my wedding photos meant a lot to me, but I realized 
if my house was on fire and I could only grab one album, it would absolutely be a family album. It wouldn't be my wedding album without my kids. So that's when I started to just get really fired up about family photography. And actually, this is such a full circle moment for me, Michael, because <laughs> I remember hearing Jenny J on your podcast in I think it was 2013. Probably. Yeah. Is this right? Like, so um, I heard her talking about in-home family photography on your podcast in 2000 freaking 13. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember standing in my kitchen and just freezing because I was like, this is it. This is what I absolutely have to do. And I was a wedding photographer at the time. So very slowly I transitioned from, you know, weddings to families, but that was like the impetus. That was the moment. That was the aha for me. So this is super fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's going old school, uh, 2013. Wow. Yeah. That was, uh, that's crazy to think that was a decade ago, but yeah, that's so cool that, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't you probably relate to this a little bit as a creative and probably as a podcaster a little bit is you sometimes put, create stuff and put stuff out in the world and you don't know who it impacts. Um, and sometimes it does impact people, but you don't hear about it. <laughs> they, you know, but people, 10 years, forever. Yeah, right? yes. Yes. Um, so it's cool when stories like that come back. Um, it kind of keeps you motivated to keep going, essentially. So that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so there's a ton of stuff that we can talk about. I guess let's just talk a little bit about you as just a creative person. Uh, you're very interested in a lot of different mediums and creative outlets. How have you gone about building kind of this unique life that you want to live for yourself? Because it seems like you are kind of purposely architecting it in a certain way. Thank you. Yeah, it is a constant creation and process, right? And I think that sometimes we think it has to be this one thing. It's really popular right now with the advice to just niche down, just choose something, go with it, only do your one thing, and then you can expand later. And I definitely think that people do need to start with one thing if they're considering all these different creative mediums and passions that they have. But for me, it has always been simultaneous. Um, I have always been you know, exploring multiple mediums alongside photography. And in recent years, more than ever, I've given myself permission to have more creative mediums that I am interested in. Um, everything from interior design to painting to, I mentioned, the musical that I'm writing. And for me, that's the fun part. And I am the type that loves to read like 10 books at a time. So I think if you're that kind of voracious personality like I am, then why not build everything simultaneously? And I also had that experience probably first with building the education side of my photography business alongside the photography. And I realized, oh, these are really separate and they require separate skill sets. And that was the first taste of like, these can go hand in hand, but they're not the same clientele and they're not the same. I'm not talking to the same person, but one can feed into the other. And that's how I feel about all my creative pursuits, that they all inform each other, that they all get to blend and bleed into one another. Like I feel like the work that I'm doing in photography has really prepared me to make interesting moves in the musical that I'm writing. And I mean, I don't know the, the musical world as well as I know the photography world, but sometimes that can be the best asset for you. And so to anybody listening who's like, I have all these passions. I really want to, you know, do something else or I potentially want to add it into my business. How do I do that? I think the best thing to tell yourself in the beginning is that being a beginner at something is your greatest asset. And instead of just thinking, oh, I need all this experience or I need to build this up as a hobby before I bring it into the business world or bring it into my brand, if you want to talk about it that way. It's like, why not do everything simultaneous, especially if you are one who has more of a personal brand, um, meaning like your photography, for example, is your personal name, Brooke Schultz Photography, then people want to know the artists behind those images. And then they want to know what else are you doing? They want to know more about you as an artist. And that can be in any different medium. So it really doesn't have to be as complex as I think I and a lot of other people make it out to be. So are you, um, you go with a philosophy of kind of, you have your one, let's say, Instagram strategy where you're doing, you just kind of have one account and you share 
everything that you do on that one account. Or some people are like, oh, you need to ever have like six accounts for your six pursuits and split it that way. I mean, if you want to have six accounts and you can manage six <laughs> accounts, I mean, more power to you. Yeah. But like I said, if you are if you are a personal brand, it makes sense to put all your things under your own umbrella. I mean, like Reese Witherspoon, she puts she has different accounts for her clothing brand and her like her directing is obviously different sides of her personal business. But it's all under the Reese Witherspoon umbrella. It all makes sense because it's all her doing it. How do you kind of navigate the financial pressure that a lot of us feel um, being I don't know if you consider yourself a freelancer or just a creative entrepreneur, but you know there's a lot of uh, having to having to pay your bills, but still having the you know the guts and the bravery to pursue things that may or may not bring income at any point. You, you know what I'm saying? So, but to still yeah. go after them. Yeah, absolutely. So. There's many different ways to approach this, and I think most people make the mistake of hedging their bets and doing things that they think the market will respond to, that they think other people will want. But I think you have to start from this Venn diagram. Like We all have this Venn diagram of things that we want to do and then things that other people want to pay us to do. And I think most people just venture way too far into the what other people want to pay them to do <laughs> category out considering that there's this delicious sweet spot in the middle. And maybe nobody ever wants to pay me for like my makeup tips, for example. I love makeup. I love the power that it has to change my mood. I'm really into that lately. But maybe nobody ever wants to pay me for that. That's okay. That can stay in the, you know, just what I like to do category of things. But there's always going to be way more in that intersection, in that Venn diagram than you think. And the best part is the only way to know what's in that Venn diagram is to put stuff out there and to try things and to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leap before I look. And this whole idea that as a creative person, you're supposed to be so calculated and have this five-year plan and do things the way that the hustle uh, culture tells us to do, I think is just absolutely ridiculous because that's not your skill set. If you identify as this multi-passionate creative person or just as if you identify as a creative person in general, you probably are really good at the ideas. You're probably really good at the leap before you look type of way of doing things. So just overall lean into your strengths and don't have to like that's the best part about being a creative entrepreneur is that you can lean into your strengths and you can get paid for things that you maybe never thought you could get paid for. I mean, right now I get paid to help photographers and I lead these retreats for three days in an Airbnb and I get paid very well for that. Like I never, if you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have been like, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just about that idea of ready, fire, aim instead of like all this overthinking, over planning that I think holds a lot of people back from doing what they actually want to do. How do you um, approach failure? Oh, failure is so fun. <laughs> it really, truly is. Like every risk is rewarded, right? Every time you take a risk, you're rewarded. Either you're rewarded with learning, aka failure, mm -hmm. or things go your way. Things are successful. And, um, you know, failing is, I mean, we, ha we, we just have to do it. And we know that we have to, but it's really that, perfectionism and that toxic work culture that we've inherited and, you know, the capitalism. I mean, we could take this many different ways, I know, but um, all of that that has turned us off to failure, like failure is the creative process, right? Like between Christmas and January 31st, I took 509 photos of my family just on my own, um, on a digital camera, by the way, not on a film camera. <laughs> but um, I kept 85 or 87 of those images. It's like a 16% success rate. I mean, that would be considered utter and complete failure by pretty much any grading system or standard. And yet I am so thrilled with the result that I have because it's not just about the end product. And we know this in our creative processes, right? Like we fall in love with the process. We fall in love with the experimentation of taking a photo and not knowing if it's going to work out or if it's not. But if we can just approach 
our businesses the exact same way with that same playfulness, with that same lightheartedness. Like, I don't know if it's going to work out or if it's not. And that's, that's a delicious part. So the thing that I think people, where people get hung up is they overplan, overthink, and then they do something so big and such that if it fails, they are out a lot of time and a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I am such a fan of the idea of a minimum viable product, minimum viable creation, where you just get the minimum version out that you possibly can. And this can be even something as simple as asking your audience on stories, hey, if I were to teach a class on A, B, or C, which one would you be interested in? Or if I were to offer X, Y, or Z, which one would be most exciting? Or you know, just asking people what they're interested in from you. And then you that's where you get to see where those Venn diagram, where that Venn diagram that we were talking about earlier, where that sweet spot is in the middle where it overlaps. And if people are like, no, don't care about, you know, this particular photo product, then you're like, okay, maybe I will climb the uphill battle to get them to care about this product. Or maybe I don't have time or energy to do that. And so I'm going to pivot and do this other product that they already are interested in and that I already love as well. You know, there's like, that's why I'm getting so excited about it because yeah. there's so many ways to make it happen. I was reading a book. Oh, man. I think this is one of the Dim Collins books. It's like good to great or I don't know. He's got all these uh-huh. business books, you know. There's yeah. one of them. I can't remember which one. I've read like four of them. But um, one of them, he's just talking about businesses. I think it's like some of why big businesses fail and he's kind of documented some of that stuff. But one of his, um, I guess, analogies or something is it's um, he's using like bullets essentially. Uh, like kind of like taking your shot, but he's saying a lot of the the easiest way to fail is to kind of put everything into like one big cannonball essentially. Mm-hmm. And if that one big mm-hmm. thing fails, then you're like usually in a strategically you're in a very bad spot. Yeah. Uh, where he said a lot of the good companies through history, how do they figure out how to pivot when the culture around them is shifts or markets are shifting? And it's, mm-hmm. they're almost always mm-hmm. constantly like it's like a shotgun approach. So it's just these little like little bitty BBs all the time and they're always probing and testing things uh, and then just getting input. So it's like they're willing to fail a bunch of little times and and then hone that in once they take that information and learn lessons and then find out which what's worked, what didn't, and then they focus in on more on what, you know, that next round of successes is and go in that direction. Um, so anyway, just what you're describing is exactly like, oh, yeah. I read that in Jim, one of Jim Collins' books, so it makes total sense. Me and Jim were, were yeah. on the same place, yeah. like me and yeah. Jim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's exactly what you're talking about, about like, I like to think of it as a project mentality, where as creative entrepreneurs or solo entrepreneurs, most of us, a lot of us, then we have the gift of agility, where we can just do something one time and just see if it works. And if it does, we can keep doing it. But if not, then we're we're not paying usually a ton of employees to do it. Or, you know, having all this overhead that many other businesses have to work out to work with. And so if you just think of it as a project, like for this particular project, I'm going to, you know, here's what I need and here's what I'm going to try. And maybe you think of it on a 30 day timeline, a 60 day timeline, a 90 day timeline, whatever it is. But if you invest 30 days into something that then, you know, launches a, an amazing branch of your business, like that's such a great investment. And even if it doesn't, right, like even if it just is the worst failure that ever happened, then you have you have learned so many valuable things and you've invested in yourself. You've invested in your own ability as a business owner, as a creative person and as somebody who can be resilient. Like I was just having this epiphany the other day that I don't have confidence in anything. I don't have confidence in my abilities and my talent. The only thing I have confidence in is my resilience. And I mm-hmm. think that's my superpower that a lot of creative people that I talk to and I, you know, I've had the gift of talking to a lot of creative people now through my podcast and my other offerings. They just feel like they have to be successful right away. And mm-hmm. or that if they're not, it means that they're not talented. It means something about them. And it doesn't mean that at all. So yeah, just yeah. If you can have confidence in one thing, let it be your resilience, because that's right. what you can control. Yeah. There's a, there's a great book. I don't know if you've, you've probably read it. I don't know if you're into books a lot, but um, the book Grit by Angela Duckworth is great. I haven't read it okay, yet. You should read I've that. heard it so good, though. Yeah, yeah, you should read that. It's really good. But yeah, same thing. Grit, resilience, it goes hand in hand, I think. Yes. So super yes. important. Um, do, you, uh, do you or do photographers or artists or creatives you talk with, um, does the topic of like perfectionism come in 
to play much? And if so, what are your thoughts on how to how to deal with that um, and kind of maybe get past wanting everything to be perfect all the time? Yeah, I think it is a plague. I think perfectionism steals more dreams than almost anything else because if you need it to be perfect, again, you're going to spend all that time overthinking, over planning, over preparing. And then you're going to just the quantity of work that you're able to produce is going to be so much lower if you're insisting on perfecting everything. Um, I actually had the opportunity to pitch my musical to a Broadway producer last week, which was so exciting, so fun, and also so nerve wracking. <laughs> um, and I feel like I just I feel like I fell flat on my face, honestly. <laughs> like there were there was this moment where I was playing him a song. And I couldn't figure out how to turn off the song. So it just kept playing over oh, and no. over and over. And every time I would try to stop it, it would just start again. <laughs> so embarrassing. So mortifying. But if I had let perfectionism get in the way, saying like, okay, this musical is probably 40% done. Maybe. I, I'm not ready to like have this call with him. Maybe I'll like, you know, tell him that I need more time or whatever. Like I would have missed the boat. And turns out like, the great thing is he was really excited about it. And he was like, yeah, I want to hear more when it's done. So perfectionism, for, and no matter what, you know, medium you're working in, that it's, it's going to kill every dream you have. It's going to stop you from going after opp opportunities. And I think the way that perfectionism disguises itself most often is just, I'm not ready. That you think you, if you had more time, if you had more skill, if you go to this next thing, if you read this next book, then you'll be ready to do whatever the thing is. But success leaves clues. And in all my study of successful people, they just say yes and figure it out later. That's Tina Fey's, you know, famous quote that when she got the call to be on Saturday Night Live, she almost said no. And then she was like, okay, say yes and you'll figure it out later. <laughs> you know, she says yes. And then she's like, I have no idea what's next. Yeah. But that's the, that when you are able to feel like that's the fun part, mm -hmm. that that's exhilarating not the perfected final product, like whatever, that's inevitable that it'll get there eventually. But when you're able to feel like that feeling of just going for something, that's when I feel the most alive. Let's talk a little bit about just your family photography stuff. And I guess you touched on it earlier, but we can dive into it a little bit deeper, but just like why, and we'll, this will kind of loop into what we're, what we're going to talk to here pretty soon too, but just like why family photography? Like why focus on that? Obviously as a, artist and a photographer, your skill set could work in a lot of other genres and areas of photography or commercial, editorial, anything like that. But you've chosen, you know, family photography. So I'm just curious why for you. Well, for me, it was really born of my own experience. I had uh, my first two daughters and my second daughter has special needs. She has a condition called Williams syndrome. It's one in 10,000, very rare. And comes with a lot of challenges, um, a lot of it just being delays. And so I, as a special needs mom and just as a mom in general, I felt so isolated, so alone, so uh, just unseen and invisible. And I knew that I was doing what I believe to be the most important work in the entire world. And yet every day I didn't feel like that. I didn't feel creative. I didn't feel like I was changing the world. And yet I knew that I was. So I started to use photography, honestly, as a way to spy on people. <laughs> but that's what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to go into, especially into these intimate environments. I mean, this makes me sound like a really creepy person, but I will own it. I wanted to see what mothers were doing in their homes. And I wanted to see what do what does she understand about this that I'm not getting? And what I found was not any magic bullet or any specific elixir that these women had that I didn't, but just number one, a solidarity and that there was so much power in the visibility of it that I needed to capture it so that I could see it not only in them, but then in myself. And, uh, you know, that quote of every, every portrait is a self-portrait, that was so true for me. And then as I developed what I 
figured out more of my voice and what I wanted to say in photography, I realized that unlike Jenny J, who I was first very, very inspired by, <laughs> it wasn't gorgeous documentary work. It was very styled, very orchestrated. And then I realized, oh, this is, you know, this is all a conglomeration of me and my interests. And, you know, 14 year old me that was obsessed with fashion magazines, but had a love hate relationship with them. And now there's a lot of, you know, fashion influence in my work, but um, there's also this hunger for this rawness and some authenticity and something that feels a little bit messed up, a little bit imperfect. I demand that from my work because of my experience in family life, that it feels more gorgeous and love-soaked and soaring than anything else that I've ever experienced, but also so mundane and so messy, like literally messy, like bodily fluids everywhere all the time, right? (laughs) And so I, I love the process of making work that tries to marry those worlds, that tries to say it's both, that tries to say it's the guts and it's the glory, it's the gorgeousness and it's the grime, it's all of it together in one sandwich that's just delicious and horrible (laughs) (laughs) so uh, walk us through um when you're photographing a family or a client or something and um i guess describe maybe how you're guiding people to kind of get the type of images that that you're you see and that you want so the first thing is that i bring the story that i want to tell i don't sit back and wait for that to happen because if people are able to show me the incredible kaleidoscope that is them as a human being and as a family and in relationship all to one another in a period of two hours, that would be amazing. It's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. So I feel that I need to pull out all those aspects of the kaleidoscope that I want to show. And so I have, you know, I call them elements of family story. And a lot of those are centered around romance. Um, Romance is a really central theme in my work. And so a romance between, yes, husband and wife, but also between a mother and a child and, you know, a, all the members of the family, like that sense of um, trying hard with each other and that sense of everything being laced with this like larger than life sort of impracticality. I love that so much. So um, I'm looking for a lot of visual elements of that, but a lot of times I'm bringing that I'm bringing that in on purpose. So I do pose a lot. I pose a lot. And then there are times where I'll create a pose or um, a general body story for different aspects of the family. And then I watch and I wait for it to fall apart and wait for it to deconstruct, wait for those moments of serendipity that happen. Um, I thrive off that chaos and that beauty in the chaos of the time when, you know, the, the baby slaps on his mom's face and, um, you know, she's like laughing, but also like actually hurt and falling down. (laughs) And, you know, those moments are where I find myself clicking the shutter more. So a lot of it is very orchestrated. Um, and I use that word orchestrated more than posed because I like to think of a family as like an, an orchestra instruments that are just sitting there and they are world-class musicians, but without a, a conductor, like how are they supposed to make gorgeous music together? And so um, I do a lot of orchestrating of them together. So I'll do a lot of like one, two, three, go, stop and freeze, that type of thing, especially because I shoot 100% film for my clients. Um, And so that's a lot slower of a process. So I need to have some predictability of when certain things are going to happen so that I can actually just focus most most of the time. And um, so I'll I'll use those tools to get those moments happening when I'm ready for them. And then um, also, you know, looking for those those organic moments that, of course, happen naturally as well. Do you photograph people most often in their homes, it looks like? Yeah. I mean, right now, uh, it's probably about 50-50 right now. I shoot a lot of clients that are coming from out of town. And so um, if they don't have a home here, then we'll do the beach or, you know, another outdoor spot, usually just the beach. But um, and I've shot in studios. It doesn't like I when I first started out, I was like, it absolutely has to be the home. Mm -hmm. And now I've 
much more shifted to this idea of it has to have the story. It still has to have the feeling. Um, but it doesn't matter to me so much the location of where we where we tap into that feeling. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if you felt like they're at their house, if they're more uh, let their guard down a little bit, whether if they're out in public somewhere, there's an extra layer of uh, of a wall that you have to break down <laughs> to get what you need. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think it's not their job to show up as their most vulnerable, true, authentic self wherever they are. I feel that it's my job to convey that. So a lot of times, like I'm saying, everything is really orchestrated and, um, you know, I'm involved a lot in it. It's not that I'm just waiting for them to be vulnerable and real. And so even if, because I, that's where I view like the professional service provider part of my job to come in. Mm-hmm. Like It's my job to create images that speak to those feelings, like the romance, the vulnerability, the authenticity, whatever it is no matter what they're doing. So even if they don't show me, you know, a, a single thread of that true self, worst case scenario in the entire two hours that we're together, it's, I still have to craft something that speaks to that part of them because I know that part's there. And if I've somehow gotten in the way of that or the weather or, the, you know, all the million other factors that can get in the way of that has like shut them down in some way, I still have to find ways around that to make that happen. And so I feel much more comfortable in being able to do that now than when I was first starting out. Like when I was first starting out in in home sessions, I felt like it has to be the home because that is the most comfortable place because their kids are the most comfortable there. And now I feel like I can I can work around any space, um, public or indoor. But yeah, if you're just getting started and you really want to do in home, um, I, it's a lot easier for that reason, but I mean, you didn't ask for this, but I'm just going to give some advice. Bring it, bring I it. feel like yeah. <laughs> it's the most, the biggest mistake that I see people making photographers making when they're shooting in home is that they think, oh, it's going to be so real. It's going to be so authentic. They're going to feel so relaxed at home. So they feel like they don't have to bring it. They don't have to go first. Mm. And the core of, my artistic philosophy is that I have to go first. I believe that when I when I go 100, they'll meet me back with like 70%, you know? And so if I'm not willing to do that, how in the world am I expecting them to just show up with something authentic and vulnerable if I'm just here in the corner with the camera not interacting with them at all? Now, of course, there are gifted photographers who do that, but that's just not my process. So if you are interested in photographing families at home, I really recommend still embodying this idea that your energy is still the most important thing in the room. It's the most important. It's the thermostat. And a lot of photographers are really good at taking the temperature. They're like, oh, this dad wasn't into it. He kind of killed my vibe. Or like, <laughs> this kid was crying the whole time or just didn't want to listen to me. Yeah. And I just think all of that is just not that relevant because you have to be the thermostat, like stop taking the temperature and start setting the temperature in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard it also described as like a, like you're, you're a mirror in a way or your clients mm-hmm. will mirror you. So whatever, mm-hmm. whatever energy or vibe or whatever you throw out into the room, they will often mirror back to you. So if you want more yeah. energy in your pictures, you've got to raise your energy level so that they will match you or if you want more calm then you have to do it the other like you know so it's it also ties back to that every portrait is a self-portrait kind of thing like you're yeah you it, it all mirrors back into the the person that's holding the camera in a lot of ways so where does your positive energy come from oh my gosh i love this question <laughs> um i especially love it because i am like a textbook enneagram four i don't know if you're familiar with the enneagram but the Enneagram 4 is the individualist. They're the romantic. They also tend toward the depressive, mm-hmm. which is absolutely me. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think I have kind of two modes, like existential dread, like nothing matters. What's the point of life? And then I have, you know, the healthy version of me, which is this, like lit up positive about the process of making art. Like I have really found that for me, the 
the best way that I have to make meaning of my life and of, you know, the world as a whole is making stuff. Like I, for every load that is too heavy for us as humans and individually, you know, me with the special needs daughter, the, like those needs are not going away. Like that is a load that's too heavy for one person. And the lack of, you know, support and systemic issues that are there at play, not just for me, but at large, like what's the balm for that? The only balm for that is connection and creation, in my opinion. And so when I'm in connection and I'm in creation, like that's where the positivity comes from. I don't know about everything else. Like when I don't have those things, tend to shrivel a bit. <laughs> right, right. Do you do you struggle with imposter syndrome often? Oh man, how do I want to answer this? Because I want to say no. I want to say right. no. I want to say that I'm rewriting this because yeah. I just read a stat that said that 75% of uh, high achieving women say that they've experienced imposter syndrome. And if you're a woman of color, that number is even higher. And I feel that I'm unlearning that a little bit more based on, you know, that I think that imposter syndrome is a lot of um, inherited, you know, systemic issues from toxic work culture, from capitalism, from all that other stuff. So I think I have made a lot of progress on imposter syndrome, but do I still have those moments where I'm like, what am I doing in this room? What is happening? <laughs> yeah. Of course, of course. And so I think that the way to um, manage imposter syndrome is not to like reject it and to say I'm never allowed to feel that I'm not um, where I want to be. Like that's the other thing is that imposter syndrome can be a gift if it's just the realization that you want to create more or that someone else has created something so incredible. That appreciation of other people's creations or your own potential or your own vision, like that's a gorgeous thing that shouldn't be, you know, thrown out with this, with this feeling that sometimes rears its head. And so I think that imposter syndrome can be, can be a gift in some ways. And that in some ways, it's like, if you feel imposter syndrome, congratulations, you're a human being like, or congratulations, you're trying something that is not that you've never done before or that you've never seen done before. And that can be a, something to celebrate. You are releasing a magazine. So tell me about this Heartful magazine, what it is, why you're doing it, all the good stuff. Yeah, thank you. I'm super excited for it. Um, this was definitely another leap before I look type of venture where I was just sick of hearing photographers say there's nowhere to you know feature family work. And a lot of outlets for featuring family work didn't really have a lot of philosophy behind them that I felt that I had behind the the spaces that I was creating for family photographers in my retreats, my masterminds, my courses, things like that. So I really wanted to create a space that did everything that we've been talking about, about shining a light on this really invisible work and about celebrating. You know, a lot of us, regardless of our careers would say that our families are the most important thing to us or that our relationships are the most important thing. And yet, like, what proof do we have of that when all is said and done? We just have photos, you know? And so um, I really wanted to create a space not only for photographers to showcase their work because family photography is kind of seen, in my opinion, as this lowest rung on the photography ladder at the moment. It's not seen as as cool as wedding, commercial, fashion, other types of photography. And I think that's really time to change. And I think that's a reflection of all the old culture that we've inherited up to this point. And I love, absolutely love the power of the internet to change culture so fast. And I am so thankful for that as a tool. So um, so the magazine is really for those for those purposes to showcase family photographers' work and to elevate it. Let's d dig into this a, a little deeper here. Um, maybe we could frame this in a different way, maybe five years from now, 10 years from now, something like that. But how do you want the Heartful Magazine to impact others in the broader scope? Yeah, I, I hope that it's able to reach down to the average person who's not a photographer, meaning that 
the ripple effects helps parents, especially mothers, to see, to see, visibly see the work that they're doing and to see it in this gorgeous light and to see also the authentic, you know, the grime, the heartache, the struggle that's inherent in this work to see that as well. So there's this scene in the movie The Devil Wears Prada (laughs) that I absolutely love where if you haven't seen the movie for anybody listening, Miranda Lambert, she's this really high strung magazine editor and she's telling Anne Hathaway, who's like her intern, who insists that she doesn't care about fashion. And she's telling her, oh, you know, you picked out this cerulean blue sweater out of some, you know, bargain bin and you think that it's showing that you don't care about fashion. But little do you know that Oscar de la Renta and Saint Laurent and all these designers did collections featuring cerulean, you know, five years ago, et cetera. And the whole point is that the architects of our world are artists and that what's next in fashion or family photography or any creative medium is not set by consumers. Like a lot of family photographers that I talk to are just saying, oh, you know, my clients only want X, Y, Z. They only want smiling at the camera pictures. They only want the Christmas card picture or whatever. What is next? What is possible is not determined by clients. It's not determined by the average person. It's determined by us as artists. And I love that ability that we have to literally create our own world. Like in my world, here's what moms look like. In my world, here's what dads do or don't do. And so my hope for the magazine is that it has that ripple effect of that average people, that parents who aren't photographers have internalized those images in some way, that they've internalized them in a status elevation, in the importance, because we know that without parents, everything falls apart. So that, but that work is so hard and it's so just like, it's so invisible and it just goes on and on without any accolades, appreciation, anything. So this is, so I hope that the ripple effect goes far beyond family photographers. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, one of the beautiful things about, you know, family photography and even here with the lab that we have is we see so many, I mean, most of our business is through family photos um, in one form or another. And yeah. and even within that, I would say a lot of artists we're working with are women. And then a lot of the pictures we're, we're printing are centered around the mother's um mm. and celebrating them and like lifting them up and encouraging them and it's just important it's easy to get caught up in kind of our own fears and the mundaneness of things and our own challenges we have in our lives but it's just it's always the reason i always love photography is just always like a reminder of like what's valuable mm. what's important what we should really be focusing on and so doing a project like this like that you're doing with the magazine it's it's going to be daunting and there's going to be days you're probably going to want to quit or whatever, but you know, you going back to having your resilience genetics or whatever you want to say that your core um, <laughs> is exciting. So I'm, I'm excited to see kind of where it goes and just the impact it will have. Cause yeah, like you're saying, I think it can impact more than just the photographers. I think it can just, you know, it can impact just parents in general and kind of re- recenter where their value structure is in some ways. I did have a question come in. Well, I had some questions come in through Instagram, but we've covered a lot of them already. <laughs> um, but we, I had another one that we've kind of talked on a little bit, but um, she was asking specifically of like, how do you overcome fears? If there's, I don't know, something you do or how you see that. Yeah, I'm very much of the feeling that overcoming fear is not the goal. And I, I also don't think it's possible. I mean, unless you're a psychopath, you probably <laughs> still have fear. And that's a good thing. But um, a few things that I like to tell myself when I'm in fear. One is fear means go and go faster, not stop. That's one of my favorite like go-to thoughts for myself. When I'm doing something in business, right? Like where my brain thinks the stakes are so high, but they're actually really not. It's really not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of feel the fear, do it anyway type of thing. I also like to reframe fear as feeling alive because that's another that's another very true sentiment. Like, I don't think it helps to say, oh, I'm afraid. I'm going to try to calm myself down. 
or I'm going to try to not feel afraid anymore. Um, Olympic athletes, whenever they are interviewed and they ask them, oh, were you afraid? Were you nervous? They always say the same thing. They say, I wasn't nervous. I was excited. It's the same sensation in your body, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's the same feeling. You just label it excitement. So that's what I like to do too. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. It's funny you mentioned that because how, yeah, I've, I've heard that phrase somewhere else of, um, I was somewhere, somebody, I think it was somebody that does like public speaking or something. And they were talking about this and they were, they were talking about that. And he was kind of providing like little tricks of like when you, when he goes on stage, things he tells himself to like mentally, like get himself in the right space mentally to like go out there. And he always just tells himself, I guess when he feels that, like he's backstage and he feels like afraid or like people are going to think I'm a fraud or a failure. And like those thoughts come into his head he always reframes it and says, no, I'm excited about this opportunity. You're like, I'm excited. Yeah. Like, that's why yeah. I feel this way. Cause I care and I'm excited about it. Yeah. And, and it's yes. just like, he has to self-talk himself into that. And then he goes and does the thing and like crushes it. But yeah, you like, yeah. that's, he has to, has to do it like every time. But it's like normal. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. And yeah. it's, it's a gift, right? Like fear does mean you care. And what would any good art be without that feeling behind it without somebody caring about it like it, if you don't if you literally don't care what people think or how it lands or how you know far and wide your impact reaches or what what people think of you then like you have nothing you have no raw material from which to make good art so like your fear is actually really good news mm-hmm. you talked to a lot of photographers you interview creatives things like that so specifically for photographers though if you could wish like one thing to be true for them like what would it be like if you could give them a superpower or whatever like what is the one thing that you would want them to have I would want them to be able to shortcut the path that they think they have to take to get where they want to go or to do the thing that they want to do because a lot of times when I'm asking people okay what would you know what would you absolutely love to have happen in this year or the next two years then they'll tell me something and I'll say, okay, and then what? Then what would you do? There's often something behind, there's a goals behind the goals or like dreams behind the dreams. And they often think that they have to take like 25 steps until they can get to the thing that they really want to do. So the superpower that I would wish for everyone is to just go do the ultimate thing and that you'll say yes. And you'll figure it out later. That would be my that would be my my blessing and my wish. Mm. Yeah, when we've done um, I've done a few education events, and usually we have like guest speakers and other other photographers are teaching, yeah. and they usually dig into the like uh, if you could do, you know, if like money wasn't a, a problem, like what would you be doing? Kind of a framing question. And it's usually something totally different than what they're doing currently. Yeah, and it's usually when people describe these things out loud like we'll, we would make them voice it at the workshop and it's like you have to like tell us like literally tell us what yeah. you would like what would be your dream <laughs> and they would tell these like really beautiful amazing things that are like super unique never heard anybody do that before and are just mm-hmm. ridiculous and I'm always like please go do that thing <laughs> like the world needs that thing but yeah. just fear is like yeah. holding them back because they have bills to pay or family or kids or whatever it is and they're just like, well, it's just they feel like it's too risky. And so they never take that shot. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the great part is that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah. Right. It can be a little something and it, it, that you can be touching parts of that dream all along the way to monetizing the dream. Like and, you know, to think about it in terms of that there's all these that life is long. I love to remind myself like. I have enough time to live all the creative lives that I want to live. And if there's just so much that I want to do, like I have to trust that I'll have enough time to do it all. And that if there is something totally disparate, so totally like out there that you, that like your real dream, your real heart of hearts, like we don't, we don't choose our desires. Like what you want wants you back. Your desire is for you. Like I've never met anyone with my exact same set of desires. And so I've decided to view my desires as sacred. And a lot of times people are looking at 
other people's desires, other people's wants, what they need from you, all this as the most important part of your day or your life. And actually, the ironic thing is that most people's real dreams, like in their real heart of hearts, their dreams are to be in service, to help other people, to like be all these things for other people. But the best way for you to serve other people is not by doing what you think they want you to do in your art or your business or anything. It's by, I always say the only sustainable art is selfish. And by that, I don't mean indulgent. I mean, it has to come from that part of you that's insatiable, that will keep going on bad days, that will keep like, that's still hungry. And that hunger, I don't think can come from just a dream that's only for you. Like we are wired to be, to contribute, to have that sense of contribution. And so like whatever dream is in your heart of hearts, like it's going to impact and help and have an amazing ripple effect that you can't even predict. And so that's, that's the best part is when you get to the heart of it, like those dreams are the most helpful to the world at large because every single person, if every single person did that, Oh my gosh, I'm getting really pie in the sky now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love it though. Um, okay, so a couple, two more questions. Um, one is, I guess, about how do you navigate, and maybe you don't, or and maybe you've seen other people do this, but just it ties back into the comment you made earlier about like resiliency. But one of, one of the things sometimes that can be an issue for some creatives is they are sometimes too all over the place. I don't know if you even believe that's a thing or not. So like so much over the over the over all over the place that uh, they don't really have like a central why or direction, if that makes sense. Like they're super ping pongy, you know, and so people don't know how to read them or what they do or who they who yeah. they serve or who they help or really anything because they're just like yeah. all over the place. But you do a lot of different things. And I wouldn't say it's like all over the place. There's like a, there's like, you still have to have like a thread, right? Or something that ties them all together um, in a direction. So how do you balance that discernment of like finding like a central direction to move in, but still explore fringe areas as you move forward? This is why I love that project mentality, because it, speaks to that creative spirit of just like, I'm interested. I'm so into this thing right now. I'm so obsessed with this particular whatever. I can do it for 30 days. And if you do something for 30 days, you post about it every day for 30 days, like you're going to become known for that thing. And that's great. And you can decide then at the end of those 30 days, if you want to continue on with that particular project or that particular thing or not. Now, couple of tips on like a project and how to make it make sense to people, an audience, publishers, like anybody that you're needing this to make sense to. It needs to have a name, ideally. And then it also needs to be explainable in one sentence to the average person without any accompanying imagery or whatever. So a lot of times I'll talk to photographers and they'll be like, yeah, I just want to, I really want to make like more emotional photos. And so then we need to dig deeper into how do we craft this into a project that has a name and that has a, a one sentence description. So maybe it's, I want to make photos. This was one that one of my students did. I want to make photos that show how mothers recover. And I'm going to call it the fifth trimester project. So there's something called the fourth trimester where after your baby is born, then you're um, you know recovering and still finding your way. But what about right after that? What about the fifth trimester? So explainable in one sentence, has a name, um, go for 30 days, you know? So anything that you want to do, and even if it's just a new medium that you want to explore, if you want to just be like 30 days of oil painting, that's cool too. Like it doesn't have to be all, um, again, overthought, overplanned, but just choose one thing and go with it for 30 days. And then you'll know, then you'll know, hey, maybe I do want to monetize this. Hey, no, maybe I want to take it. Just this is going to stay a hobby. And so I think that a lot of times when creative people are just so bouncing around, it's because they're still either, if it's not because they're genuinely interested in so many things, it's because they aren't, they're still trying to figure out which one can I monetize. And that's not a bad thing, you know, like money is necessary to, like money buys you time to do more art. So that's amazing. Uh, but I think that 
just starting with something for 30 days, of course, you can make the project longer or like have a different scope, or maybe it's, you know, three shoots over a course of 60 days or something like that. But um, just starting with that, that mentality of a time frame and a title and, you know, something that can be easily explainable in one sentence, that's a really great starting point. With your process and your everybody works different and everybody's in terms of like their creative process and how they work is different. So I'm just more specifically for you and your process. Do you tend to work like just try a bunch of things and then you do self-reflection afterwards to figure out what it is about it that you liked and if you want to keep doing it? And that's where you find kind of your core mission. Or do you feel like you know yourself enough that you kind of have a core mission already and then you loop other things in around that? Does that make sense? Like it's working either forwards or backwards. Neither one's right or wrong, but just curious. I think it's always a combination of both for me that I have this core mission of especially making motherhood and parenthood deeply seen. That's like my core mission. And then couple that with that desire that I have to help other people in their creative sparks and like get their ideas made. Those are kind of like my two big like missions that are bigger than me that are bigger than I'll ever be able to accomplish myself. Uh, And so things are often, you know, threads to that and um, they're serving those purposes. But I don't let that stop me if there's something that I want to do that doesn't have a clear connection to either of those things yet. Maybe painting, for example, would be one that's like, I just like to do it. I don't know. (laughs) And that's fine, too. You know, like that can be a that's a really delicious space as well. And that's that's also like creativity as just play, as fun, as a connection to your younger self as a connection to like your own vibrancy and vitality all that is an amazing and worthwhile pursuit in and of itself like not everything has to fit into a neat box so I think for me it's different mediums right now that are in different boxes if that made any sense (laughs) last question is just work-life balance you do a lot of stuff have kids (laughs) a lot of kids how do you do it What's your strategy? So many kids. (laughs) I, my strategy is just to be graceful in the change because I think the most constant thing for me, especially as a mother who wants to be one of the most primary caregivers, that the most, the constant is change. And so I just have found that I have to be uh, willing and as graceful as I possibly can be in the changes and to be willing to hold those transitions, whether it's the transition of that happens in the day where it's like, okay, I'm with kids. Now I'm working that transition. I need to be, um, mindful of and like compassionate with myself towards like, okay, maybe I'm having trouble transitioning to one or the other and that's okay. Um, but then also the transition of my kids, getting older, going to school, babies, you know, my life looked a lot different when I had a three-year-old, an 18-month-old and a newborn than it does now that I have kids that are nine, eight, six, and two. So that ever elusive work-life balance, (laughs) I like to think of it as just blend and flow that some days this, and I mean, this is the other thing that I think is so beautiful about having a creative career is that a lot of work environments are very like rigid and um, every day is the same. But the beautiful thing about creativity and about creative entrepreneurship is that every day can be different. And in, in creative pursuits, it's all cyclical. It's all seasonal too. Like we don't expect blooms in the winter. We know that there's a period of deep reflection, rest and quiet that needs to happen in the winter for the natural world. And so I think for our best creations, especially long-term creations, that has to be baked into our lives as well. And so I think in my younger years, I spent a lot of time like bossing myself around and wishing like, I need to have these seven habits every single day. And I need to like do this, like very bro with energy, right? Like, (laughs) I, I just flow with it a whole lot easier. Like if I'm lit up and I want to work for like, five hours straight after my kids have gone to bed. Well, that's pretty rare. I usually don't work after my kids go to bed. But if I do and I want to or I've procrastinated something and I have to, then 
I do that. And then there'd be like two days where I don't do anything for work necessarily. And I'm like taking care of other things that are required in the house. Um, So I just think that for every person, the only kind of advice that I could give is just to trust yourself. And also in trusting yourself, be okay with mistakes being made and changes that need to be made as well. I've had so many setups that didn't work. And then by the time you realize that they don't work, like you've gone down a road with them that's like, okay, maybe you could consider that wasted time. But everything that I'm saying now about like the cyclical nature of all of this, like I didn't know that starting out. And so that um, that self-trust is your most powerful asset in developing your own work-life balance in any season, I think. I love it. Um, all right. Tell us where to everybody can find you uh, on the web and especially with the Heartful magazine coming up. Tell us where we can find it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been just an absolute delight. I am on Instagram at Brooke B. Schultz. There's a lot of letters in there. So it's B-R-O-O-K-E, the letter B as in boy, and then Schultz, S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. And then the Heartful Magazine is on Instagram as well, just at Heartful Magazine, H-E-A-R-T-F-U-L Magazine. And then you can go to my website, brookschultzphotography.com or brookbschultz.com. There's freebies there, um, six hacks for skyrocketing creativity, even if you're super busy. Um, how to prep your clients for a lifestyle family photography session. If you're interested in any of those reviews, you can go to both of those sites. And I also have a podcast called Wildly Creative Life. You can just search it wherever you get your podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. This was fantastic. Thank you, Michael.